between the doubt and the taste, we sat bored watching films. We didn't want to. Between the taste and the doubt, we lay clothes on the bed, never speaking, never needing to speak, never wanting to leave. Between the drought and the flood, dancing and groping in smoke-filled rooms. Between the flood and the drought, dreaming and hoping our lives as one, never needing to speak, never wanting to leave. But now it's like I never knew you. But now. It's like I never touched you. Again and welcome to Strange Brew Podcast. And my name's Jason Barnard, and that was Plenty and Never Needing. Yeah. Hopefully, you'll be familiar with Plenty because about 
eight months or so ago, I spoke to Tim Bonus of Plenty, no man and great artist in his own right, because at that time, Tim had a solo album out, Flowers at the Scene. But now, actually, as he trailed in that podcast, he has a, a new No Man album out, Love You to Bits, which I think out, is out in November. Welcome, Tim. Hello. Uh, nice to be back. And again, you, you've picked great cross-section of tracks, taking us from another side of, of your journey over the last sort of 30 years, really. Obviously, we'll be focusing uh, at the end of the show on the, the, the new No Man album, but I think as we cover some of these tracks, I think there's potentially some threads where we can kind of talk about the new album as well. Absolutely. I mean, I think that um, I chose this track because it was always the most popular Plenty track live. And it was actually very important in the birth of No Man as well, because when No Man first formed and first played live, Stephen and I did perform a few Plenty tracks, including this. And when we got our first ever industry deal with Hit and Run Publishing, we got signed on the basis of a No Man track called Days in the Trees and a Plenty track called Life is Elsewhere, which became never needing. So this particular song, although it originates from 1987, that recording is from 2018 when we re-recorded the piece, but it was really important to the development of both No Man and Plenty and certainly was one of the reasons why our uh, early publishing company and even our early record company, One Little Indian, signed the band. And for whatever reason, we didn't release it as No Man, but um, it was something I've always had um, a longing to re-record, and partly because I felt a historical debt to the song because it had been so important. I think you mentioned this last time about, in, in some cases, you, you altered the lyrics a little bit. Was was it the case in relation to this, or did you stick faithful to the original lyrics? This one is one of the very few, very faithful versions. I think I've only changed one or two lines, whereas a lot of the album I'd have rewritten up to 50, 60% of the lyrics, sometimes more. In a couple of cases, I'd have changed the odd line. And this was was one of those where it, it just seemed right, really. Um, and also, I wanted it to be true to the um, expression of the time. It, it has a certain kind of adolescent desperation. <laughs> and, and, I, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to be true to my um, desperate adolescent side. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, the lyrics um, do feel quite personal. Having to sing them again of, in the position that you were kind of at the time must have been quite an interesting experience. It really was. I mean, the Plenty album was, was incredibly energising, actually. Going back to old ways of singing, old ways of writing, old ways of making music was surprisingly instructive and educational. Um, and so I found it quite an exciting and creative project because I was bringing to it the benefit of experience that I've had over the past 30 years. Um, but it was also teaching me something. And when I was singing the songs, I found that I was absolutely in the world that they created. And that song was an extremely personal song um, about a breakup I had when I was extremely young. And I think that when you're young, you feel those things intensely and, and the lyric conveys that. And I just felt that I had to be true to what I felt at that time. And um, when I was singing it, I immersed myself almost in the character and we wrote a brand new song for the Plenty album. So nine of them, the songs on the album were 
fairly faithful re-recordings of material we'd written in the 80s, but one track we spontaneously wrote. And I deliberately wrote it as a kind of sequel to Never Needing. So I once more imagined myself as that character, but having followed a different life path. And so elements of the relationship that Never Needing speaks about were in one of the new songs as well. And with plenty, what was great about it is that it rekindled my writing and recording partnership with Brian Hulse. And we'd not worked together for, you know, God, 29, 30 years. And it was almost as if we'd never stopped. And it's it's been incredibly productive since then. And perhaps the most crucial thing is that it doesn't feel as if we're repeating ourselves either lyrically or musically. So it's been quite inspiring. Um, and that was, was a starting point both for No Man in the late 80s, but also, I think, for the recent flurry of activity, Flowers at the Scene. Um, and Flowers at the Scene obviously rekindled the No Man production partnership with Stephen Wilson. I mean, Stephen's mixed my albums of late, but he hasn't worked in uh, co-production with me. And when we were doing it, it's when we finally decided to complete Love You So Bit. So again, it, it ties in with the present and the past quite neatly. Mm, it's interesting to see that thread of events because um, it's incredible to think that it's 11 years since you had a, a No Man album out. Is that correct? Is it that long? It really is, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't seem that long, but... <laughs> it, it doesn't. I think that they do always say that as you get older, time seems yeah. to pass more quickly. Um, I mean, we did a No Man tour in 2012 and released a live album then, right. but this is the last studio album, Schoolyard Ghosts. And although I've recorded an awful lot of material since then, it, it obviously seems quite uh, recent to me as well. Um, but... What was interesting about, say, Schoolyard Ghosts and Together with Stranger is that they were recorded in very different ways from a lot of No Man albums. And Schoolyard Ghosts in particular was one where I'd written a lot of the material or co-written it and brought it to Stephen. And Stephen and I then developed it as a No Man production team. With Love You to Bits, it was one of the first albums really since World Opera, where the two of us were in the studio creating music, just throwing ideas at one another. And um, it was quite an exciting return to an older way of doing things in real time. And so we were just kind of, you know, getting into the studio at, let's say, 11 a.m. and leaving it at 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. And uh, when you're working in such a concentrated way in real time together, it, it can be extremely productive. We talked about the first No Man album, Love Blows and Love Cries, last time around. We talked about the sort of dancier edge there. Do you, do you think that therefore there's a, a bit of a thread comparing Love You To Bits to Love Blows and Love Cries? I think in some ways there is. I mean, with Love You To Bits, in some ways it could have been the follow-up album to Flower Mouth in that um, when we completed Flower Mouth, and we were really happy with the album, We'd completed it knowing it might be our last album because certainly at that point, mm. record companies, publishing companies, they would drop bands after one or two albums if you hadn't achieved what they wanted. And Love, Blows and Love Cries came out and represented a particular approach for the band. It was a more 
dance oriented pop oriented approach but it still had some experimentation some complex textures and musical ideas and we completed that and it probably hadn't done as well as the record label wanted but it did get some very good reviews and so they gave us the financing for a second album which was Flowermouth and we decided that if this was going to be the last album we were going to make let's just make it everything we want it to be and so we bought our home studio we we bought a great microphone bought a great ADAT setup and we got musicians involved who we'd admired for a long time so that was people like Jansen Barbierian Khan who'd been in Japan Robert Fripp obviously um, the legendary Robert Fripp Ian Carr who was uh, an extremely well-known British jazz trumpet player um, and we just decided to make exactly the album we wanted and exactly the way we wanted it to sound and when we'd finished it we were very happy with it and and the label had a production budget and they had a video budget and they heard the first track which i think you're going to play at some point angel gets caught in the beauty trap and this was a ten and a half minute rhythmless piece and this was not what they were expecting or our manager was expecting and within probably 10 minutes of the record company meeting the video budget was dropped and a lot of the promotional budget was dropped and the optimism had uh, obviously turned to extreme pessimism for everyone concerned. And the idea we actually had uh, for the video was quite an innovative one. And it was a, somebody we both knew uh, called Michael Benyon. And he eventually used it um, for some of the work that he was doing with BBC Two. And it was an award winning video. <laughs> so, but that would have been the, the video for what was going to be the single from Flowermouth, which was going to be watching over me. But on hearing the album, they decided it was going to be an absolute disaster. And the great irony was that the album sold about four times more than the debut Love Blows and Love Cries. The reviews were even better than the debut. And it actually gave No Man something of an audience footing as well. Despite that, we got dropped and we got dropped by our American label Epic. We got dropped by our British label, One Little Indian and our manager, Keith Aston, who had been Talk Talks manager, he also dropped us. And then the cherry on this was that the most supportive people uh, behind us had been our publishing company hit and run and they dropped us. So, so for producing this music that we loved, uh, we ended up absolutely nowhere. Smoke 
and the city smells. My head comes alive with the humming of engines. I cannot scream for the dust.
the sweet air I remember the time when I fell in love Only to cry in my
we had started on what was going to be the follow-up to Flowermouth, and we we were really buzzing, if you like, from Flowermouth because we were so happy with it. And we wrote the beginnings of two tracks. One of them was Love You to Bits. One of them was Lighthouse. And these were just two song fragments at that stage, really. Our idea was that we were going to develop these in much more expansive, ambitious ways. So Love You to Bits, we always had in mind that it was going to be a sidelong piece or perhaps an album-long investigation into it. And Lighthouse, similarly, I think we felt this was going to be a piece that could be one of the No Man epics. And while we were working on those, this is when we found out that we'd been dropped by everybody. And the mood in the No Man camp was not good. And as well as losing all of the um, contracts, we then parted company with our long-term violinist, Ben Coleman. And we just developed what became Wild Opera. We just produced these pieces that were very spontaneous, very immediate. We gave ourselves an hour to write, record and complete pieces of music. And so the next album that came out on a much smaller independent label called Third Stone, Wild Opera, perhaps better reflected how we felt and the emotional state we were in in 94, 95, 96 than Love You To Bits and Lighthouse. And you've picked Dry Cleaning Ray, which originally was a wild opera, although you've, you've, you've picked the, the remix edit of that, which, which came out in a, an EP uh, about a year after Wild Opera. Yeah. Well, Dry Cleaning Ray was certainly one of the most popular tracks from Wild Opera. And that started off in, in one of the most primitive ways, because when we were writing the pieces for Wild Opera, we were working from a lot of samples and a lot of grooves. Um, I'd occasionally bring in songs. Stephen would occasionally bring in songs. Um, but in a lot of cases, we were working uh, from quite rudimentary samples. And two examples of that were um, Sheep Loop, which started off, and I, I just had a CD ghetto blaster. And it was an Archie Shep piece. And so I just kept on looping this Archie Shep piece on the ghetto blaster and I wrote a song over it. And the same with Dry Cleaning Ray, that Dry Cleaning Ray started off with uh, me hearing Egg's version of a Bark fugue. And I thought, that's really interesting. Mm. And just kept on looping this because um, with a lot of the early No Man pieces, when we were actually sampling, we were sampling from extremely eclectic sources. Uh, because one of the things I think I've always said about my relationship with Stephen is that what was great from the beginning is that neither of us had any particular boundaries, that we both loved commercial music, we both loved avant-garde music, we both loved things in between, and we weren't particularly embarrassed by our tastes. And so, you know, when you're listening to the very early No Man albums up to Wild Opera, which is the point when we stopped sampling, you would have samples from anything from you know, Led Zeppelin to Isaac Hayes, Yes to Egg to Stockhausen to Archie Shep, um, because it was things we'd be bringing in from our record collections that we were enthusiastic about, um, you know, and, and there might be a certain piece that could have Van de Graaff Generator and Dead Can Dance on, you know, um, and it's quite unusual in a lot of cases. We've worked with the pieces that we were sampling and, and had to come clean, you know. 
which we did at the time, to be fair. We, we, we announced this to our publishing company. Um, but what was interesting about that was um, when we were sampling, in the early days of sampling, people would react in different ways. So, for example, there's a No Man piece called Taking It Like a Man, and we used a tiny snippet of a Tom Waits piece. And Tom Waits' people insisted on a few thousand for the use of it, plus 50% of the publishing. And this is maybe 5% of the piece. It's just uh, it's an introductory line. On the other hand, Isaac Hayes, we used a sample on a track called Pretty Genius from Wild Opera. And the piece is virtually me singing over the Isaac Hayes sample. And with Isaac Hayes, it just, oh, yeah, just give us 200 pounds. It's yours. <laughs> um, and so it varied massively what people were prepared to accept. And also it varied massively because I believe that our publishing company tried to get in touch with, say, Egg or Van de Graaff Generator and mm. couldn't get to the right people. Um, so it, it was it almost felt like the Wild West in those days of sampling, really. Um, and, yeah, Wild Opera had a very different feel because it was made in such a different way. And, and I think that some of the pieces I've chosen um, – I've chosen because they represent ways of, of working for us. So Angel Gets Caught in the Beauty Trap, which was a very important track for us, really. And it was a real statement of intent to place it first on Flower Mouth. Mm. We'd started writing that possibly even in late 1988. And with No Man pieces, there are always different ways of, of, of approaching them. So some pieces happen over a very long period of time. Some pieces happen extremely spontaneously so uh, good examples would be angel gets caught in the beauty trap which originated from say maybe late 88 or early 1989 and we just continually developed it until it was released on the album 1994 um, adding bits to it rewriting lyrics there'd be versions that would have lasted anywhere between four minutes to 20 minutes of that piece until we uh, finally agreed on that 10 and a half minute version and um it suddenly felt right because i think you've always got to work on gut instinct does it feel right
working lovely to bits and lighthouse their origins were directly after we'd completed flowermouth and these are amongst you know two of the no man tracks that took a hellishly long time to complete so lighthouse again probably was anywhere between three minutes and 15 minutes long and ended up as the eight or nine minute piece on on returning jesus and again it would be continually being added to in terms of instrumentation even instrumental parts um, all things subtracted from it until it felt right and that came together in the returning jesus jesus sessions about seven years after we'd originally written the song Uh, but love you to beat uh, love you to bits Mm. beats the no man record because it took 25 years to get right and um with that we wrote the original, if you like, pop song core of it in 1994. Then between 1994 and probably 2013, we continued to write to it, continued to add to it. And it varied between four minutes and, say, 16 minutes as a piece and had very different sections. You know, at one point there was even um, quite a pronounced saxophone section with um, Theo Travis. And it never felt right for any of the albums we were making because after Wild Opera, we completely abandoned samples. We completely abandoned dance beats. And the albums that followed Returning Jesus Together with Stranger and Schoolyard Ghosts were much more organic pieces of work that developed very much from songwriting as opposed to working with loops. Right. And Love You to Bits never felt like it fitted the albums we were working on and it was when we were working on flowers at the scene that suddenly uh we both said let's go back to this i think now we're in the right headspace to make it happen and make it happen in the way that we want and we hadn't really worked on it since 2013 there was there was a, there was a bit in 2013 where it looked like there could be another no man album and this had a starting point of me bringing in a lot of songs it was just like schoolyard ghost basically where i brought in about 15 songs that i'd either written myself or i'd co-written with other people and then Stephen was doing the jukebox jewelry and listening to them and 
uh, and and giving me some quite candid feedback. So, you know, he'd listen to one piece and say, yeah, I can work on that. I can see where I can go. Or what on earth did you bring this pile of dog shit to me for? You know, and um, and the thing is that both of us can be extremely brutal with one another in a way that we're we're not with other people and in a way that other people aren't with us. And so in 2013, I went to see Stephen and subjected quite a lot of songs to the jukebox jury. And we then worked on an idea I had for Love You to Pieces, which became the second part of Love You to Bits. And it was a sort of four, five minute piece. And that was it, because um, about a month later, Stephen didn't have the time. He was working very much on his album, The Raven That Refused to Sing. And so he kindly offered to mix the best of my solo work. And so it would be uh, a solo album. And so that's what became Abandoned Dance or Dreams. Um, and with the songs that I took to Stephen in 2013, it was interesting that perhaps three quarters of them ended up on Abandoned Dance or Dreams. And in fact, probably all of Abandoned Dance or Dreams was what I'd imagined would be the, the natural success of Schoolyard Ghosts. Because with Schoolyard Ghosts and with the live tour of 2012, we developed a particular no man identity, which felt quite new. And it was working in a more post rock and minimalist classical direction. And there was also a more tribal element to the percussion as well. And so abandoned dancehall dreams really was my idea of what would have been the natural successor to school of ghosts. And two of the tracks we even played live in the no man 2012 tour. So, you know, there was a very, very direct uh, link between Abandoned Dancehall Dreams and Schoolyard Ghosts and No Man. But um, anyway, when we were producing Flowers at the Scene in 2018, um, suddenly we felt in the right place to make Love You to Bits a reality. And so in late um, October 2018, we got together, spent three days of very intense um, all-day activity in the studio and ideas were just flowing it was, it was fantastically enjoyable that's the genesis of love you to bits and love you to pieces really and so for a lot of this year i've spent time rewriting the lyrics re-recording the vocals um getting the instrumental overdubs um and that includes people like adam holtzman playing keyboards and um david collar playing guitar and also we got um a brass band on on one section and this this was kind of how spontaneous so for a piece that took 25 years what was great about it is that perhaps over half of it was written in the last year and certainly the vast majority of production ideas came from this year so um Stephen would have said do you know what david collar's the guitarist for this and so he'd have got involved david collar and the brass band came from the fact that i was just listening to the piece and thinking this needs a proper coda. And there's something in the keyboards that suggests a brass band. So Stephen saying, okay, make it happen. So within a week, I'm contacting brass players and getting the studio session. So that was the thing about Love You To Bits, that it's got its origins in 1994. And bits have been added to it between 94 and 2013. But actually, it feels incredibly fresh because a lot of the ideas were actually this year mm. um and so it's kind of it's it's new and old at the same time and i say it represents the most extreme example of no man 
taking quite a long time for a piece to finally sound right. Maybe this is a good time, therefore, to play the montage that's available so people can get a bit of a sample of what, what the album sounds like. Yeah, sure. Let's go back, I think, to 2001 and a project of yours that we didn't cover last time, and that's uh, Henry Full. Is that your collaboration with Stephen Bennett? Is that how 
the, the genesis of that? Yeah, I think it is actually. I mean, Stephen Bennett, I met in the late 1990s. I moved to Norwich and um, I did a couple of gigs at the Arts Centre um, with a more acoustic lineup of um, with Peter Chilvers, Michael Bearpark, people I'd worked with for years. Um, and a saxophonist called Mike Clifford and Stephen Bennett was in the audience uh, with a couple of other people and they were no man fans and after the gig they came up to us and talked and we got on really well so we actually arranged to have a coffee and a chat because he was from the same region of the UK that I was from and we had a lot of shared tastes and um, he had his own musical abilities and musical studio setup. and I was asked to do um, a guest vocal for David Torn the guitarist and at the time, I felt he could record me better than I could at my home studio. So I asked him if he'd be up for that. And so I recorded a vocal at Stephen's studio for David Torn. And we got in extremely well, really, and then just started discussing musical projects. And this led to Stephen getting involved in Henry Fool and No Man and my early solo albums. It was, you know, it was it was great fun. Um, he had a studio which was in an attic, which was even more perfect. You know, you had to climb up a ladder to get to it. And um, within the first few months of us really working together, Stephen had been on bits of No Man's Together with Stranger and we'd formulated the idea for Henry Fool. As well as this, we found out that we'd he'd heard my tracks on Northwest Radio um, when he was in some of his early bands and even bought cassettes, you know, demo tapes that uh, we'd released in the, in the 80s, including Plenty, um, to bring it back to. Uh, you know in the loop here and i'd actually met him but you know we'd, we'd actually met at a party in the 1980s not knowing who one another was and talked for about four or five hours so there was a bizarre hidden history and it even goes through to stephen wilson's new album because the the co-producer on that is david coston and david coston was a no man fan who contacted me in the mid 1990s and he was in a band called fault line and um, I ended up doing some work for David and David ended up doing some work from No Man. And since then, he's become a really high profile producer working for people like Everything, Everything and Back for Lashes and, you know, quite a number of major artists. And it turned out that David Coston had been inspired to get involved in studio production by his sister's boyfriend, Stephen Bennett. So there were all sorts of utterly bizarre connections. And so, you know, I worked very closely with Stephen um, for quite a long time. And Henry Fool came about because I always wrote things on the guitar. And in terms of guitar ability, I can write songs and I can just do stupid riffs. I'm not musical in the traditional sense in the sense that I never learned to read music. And so I taught myself how to play from the Ralph Allen guitar handbook, I believe it was. And so I've always really just known enough to write songs and also to just occasionally come up with these ludicrous riffs that obviously come from a childhood misspent listening to sort of King Crimson, Yes, Genesis and Steve Reich and Philip Glass, The Minimalists. And I played them to Stephen and he said, actually, no, they're really good. We should just get a band together in the old-fashioned way and record something. So we basically got together a group of musicians and spent three days in a studio exactly as you would have done in, say, 1972. So basically, the band were as good as I was because it was an improvising band. It was, it was working from, from songs that, uh. if you like, songs and riffs that I'd started up 
with. And the reason why it was as good as I was, was because I couldn't do anything else other than what I could do. <laughs> so if, for example, Stephen started with um, any number of jazzy minor diminished, I wouldn't know what the hell to do. So basically the band were my prisoners. So, so I had to come in with all of these ridiculous riffs and all of these ridiculous chord sequences that, that, that I kind of learned um, because it was all I could play. So for about two or three days in this isolated studio in Norfolk, uh, we got together a six-piece band and we just improvised around the riffs that I'd been building up over years and, and a couple of songs as well and also a couple of things that Stephen brought in. And, and it was tremendous fun, really, because it was working in a way that I don't think any of us had done uh, before. And it was it was also really interesting to get very high-quality recordings from the off because we were just recording straight to tape. And so Henry Fool was that, really. It, it, it just um, it was a way of exhausting uh, my supply of idiot riffs that I've been building up. And uh, and the track Poppy Z that you're about to hear um, was one of them. And I suppose that the thing is that being an untutored player meant that I would often do things that tutored players wouldn't. And and so a few of the songs, for example, were in you know time signatures such as you know twenty five eight or what have you um, or seventeen eight. And and it was it was just purely because they were things that I would play myself to amuse myself but of course what i could never do then was the clever key change which is what stephen bennett could do you know stephen bennett is, is a very schooled musician so mm. you know he'd take these sort of um dumb ideas and he could make them more musical but in the case of the track that uh, you're going to play from henry fool this really was a case of me having a riff me playing the the, the chords and the riff everybody else joining in and it was just a racket that we created. And it, and it was, you know, really good fun. It was almost like being in a garage band again.
Is there a connection with Henry Fowle and, and the next track that we play in Post-its and your collaboration with Peter Chilvers? Because Peter was involved with Henry Fowle, wasn't he? He was, yeah. He was reluctantly involved with Henry Fool, actually, because oh. everybody else in the band um, absolutely, you know, has a history of loving uh, progressive rock, jazz rock, you know, everything unfashionable. Hmm. Disco. <laughs> Every, everything unfashionable we all had a history of. But um, Peter's tastes didn't really encompass that. But we, we forced him to do it because he was the only bass player we knew at the time. And uh, I think he quite enjoyed it. Um, but Peter I've been co-writing with and working with um, ever since he was a teenager, really. He's one of those people, a bit like Michael Bear Park, Stephen Wilson, where I've worked with them since they were extremely young. Uh, Michael Bear Park has been my guitarist of choice since he was 15. Gosh. And, you know, Stephen Wilson and I, when we were working together, Stephen was still in his late teens and I was in my very early 20s. And with um, Peter, he just started university. He met Michael Bear Park through an advert um, at the university. And so I used to visit the two of them. And when I first worked with Peter Tilvers and Michael Bear Park as a trio, it was an antidote to no man, really. And it fits in with Love Blows and, and Love Cries that when we first started No Man, No Man was a really freewheeling, anything goes band. So, as I said, what was great about working with Stephen is that nothing was off the table, nothing was off the agenda. Mm. And when we got signed on the basis of um, Never Needing and Days and Trees, suddenly there was pressure. Suddenly we were signed to a publishing company, we were signed to a record label, we had quite a high-profile manager. And although we were still writing what we wanted to write, because the thing is that we did love the upcoming dance music, we, we did love a lot of um, pop music, what was interesting is that no man at that point were playing live to click tracks and backing tracks and the spontaneity had gone. And I think what we did with it was quite interesting and I enjoyed doing it, but it really gave me a hunger to work in something far looser. So when I wasn't touring with no man and working within that very strict click track, backing track environment, I was in this acoustic trio with um, Michael Bear Park and, Peter Tilvers, and it was exactly the opposite, and we formed it to be the opposite. So it really was acoustic, piano in real time, voice. And we did a few dates at that time as well. Um, unusual performances, really, you know, as a trio, but also supporting artists, you know, such as Marillion and so on. And it was just, it was just an interesting antidote to the no-man work of the time that was seeming more regimented. And so I've worked with peter since then really and that was the early 1990s and um by the early 2000s we'd been writing a few songs together and the album we produced california norfolk developed out of um the fact that he'd moved quite near me and so suddenly we were working together on a daily basis and we'd formed burning shed together as well burning shed came out of an idea that i had but the only reason the idea could work is because Peter had the technological skills to make it happen. And uh, Pete Morgan, who, again, there's, there's a link which I'll go into, but Pete Morgan actually had the managerial skills and the office space to make it happen. So it's a really fortuitous meeting of three people that formed Burning Shed. And at that point, we were working very closely. And so the music that Peter and I were writing, I think, really progressed dramatically during that time and we decided that we were going to make 
an album with just the two of us. So we were playing instruments we weren't familiar with. So although a lot of it is quite keyboard oriented because that's um, Peter's skill, I was playing all the electric and acoustic guitars. Peter was playing things like double bass and stick, which he was at the time very unfamiliar with. So there was a real accidental quality that we quite liked and and an intimacy to it. And so California Norfolk developed very organically, really, over a period of about six months, probably during the same time that um, I was working on No Man's Together with Stranger. But, um, But with Pete Morgan, the Pete Morgan story is that Pete Morgan supported No Man in 1989. We were both supporting a band. It was an indie goth band called the Venus Flytrap. And it was my birthday in 1989. Oh. And what was a great treat was actually we went down fantastically well. We actually went down better than than the headline. But the third support was was Pete Morgan. And he at the time was a sort of, um, was like a, a one-man pet shop boys <laughs> but, uh, i'm sure he wouldn't like this description but he was he was described you know he, he called himself the bush babies but it was one man and it was um and it was pete morgan yeah. and pete was working to backing tracks and singing to backing tracks and actually it was, it was quite interesting he i could hear influences from artists that i liked like the blue nile and talk talk and so i went over to him and said actually sure I had certain Blue Nile Talk Talk elements there. He said, yeah, I absolutely love them. So we got on incredibly well and for years became Christmas card um, friends and, and occasional phone friends. And then in the late 90s, I moved quite near him and then Peter moved quite near me. And so we were all in the same place at the same time. And uh, this is how Burning Shed happened and it's how the album California Norfolk happened. Uh, and you know what is quite interesting is there are lots of threads here that you know little bits of um you know even with love you to bits that they all come down to these you know pete morgan is on that actually he's one of the few guests on it and so you know a lot of these threads from the past where you just kind of almost have random meetings and they become extremely important people in your life Come down 
track is is from an album that we've we've discussed a, a few times uh, for me the track wherever there is like is a great example of what you were talking about earlier kind of a bit more of that organic uh, style of songwriting is that what Ab- you'd... absolutely and part of the reason i've chosen this because this is the opposite of what we've been discussing earlier so what you have with say angel gets caught in the beauty trap and lighthouse and love you to bits those are the pieces that really took a long time to feel right. And wherever there is light was the other end of the no man's scale that we were working on School Your Ghosts. And, and as I said, School Your Ghosts started with songs that I brought in and then we developed as a no man production team, really. And while we were doing the album, Stephen was just sitting there with the guitar, played something, and I immediately sang. 
And I would say that wherever there's light, which is actually one of my favorite No Man tracks. So this is the thing that you can never tell what will be your favorite or how it will come to to happen. Stephen played the guitar. I sang. We immediately recorded it. Then I had um, an idea for what became the flute and live violin line. And the song was done. Wow. And it was just, as I said, the polar opposite of Angel Gets Caught. But for me, equally good. You know, this is the thing that you you never know when something good is going to happen or how it's going to happen. And sometimes when you're working spontaneously, the pieces seem incomplete or they seem wrong. Um, but this was one that was just right from the start. And, and that's why I chose it. And there's that lovely pedal steel on there. Yeah, the pedal steel was, um, I, I was a huge fan of a band called American Music Club and they had a pedal steel player and, and I could hear pedal steel on this. And in the, the way that again is a kind of a thread running through no man um, of, you know what, let's just get him. And so I found out, you know, and because the guy, he, he's a top pedal steel player. He's one of the top pedal steel players in the world and works from San Francisco. And um, he's been on a lot of, you know, huge pop and country and Western works. And so I just wrote to him, I think via MySpace, I think, you know, uh, which gives you the vintage of the track. And he got back straight away and said, yep, love to do it. And um, so I got him on uh, two tracks on Schoolyard Ghosts. And his, his name is Bruce Caffan. And um, what he gave us was utterly sublime you know he was one of those players that you didn't really et- need to edit it much he was just absolutely um right straight away you know so again it added to the spontaneity of the piece as well as adding a quality to it and um but that no man thread you know i think that kind of started when we worked with um jansen barbieri and calm because in the early 90s we played as a trio and it was myself stephen wilson Ben Coleman and we worked backing tracks and I think it was surprisingly energetic and surprisingly interesting given that but the record company and the manager felt that we needed a live rhythm section and we weren't very keen and so to make it difficult for them we said well look the only people in fact it wasn't the manager at the time it was the publisher in the record company because the manager comes into it now and so we made a ridiculous demand saying well look the only rhythm sections we like at the moment the Rain Tree Crow rhythm section and the Talk Talk rhythm section. And so they went to try and get them. And um, at the next No Man gig, Jansen Barbieri and Calm were in the audience. And we had a meeting with them. And at the next No Man gig, the Talk Talk rhythm section with the audience, plus their manager. Yeah. And um, what that led to was um, Talk Talk's manager taking us on as a client. Uh, so that was really positive and the Jansen Barbieri and Khan um they just said yes so we ended up doing a tour with them in 1992 and it, it was a great thrill because we've both been fans of Japan and Raintree Crow although interestingly enough for me it never felt like a great artistic match live for whatever reason I felt the No Man trio was both more direct and more experimental um, adding the rhythm section, I think, took something away from us. And I'm not sure our live music suited the uniqueness of Jansen Barbieri and Khan. Although it's fair to say that on the tour, Mick Khan was was a revelation, and as was Ben Coleman, our violinist. I mean, they were both superb players and superb 
live performers you know they really were quite visually striking as well and so they made a great team but it wasn't necessarily as much to my taste as we've been before really um and as we were afterwards but the track i selected from love lives and love cries was one example of a studio collaboration we had with jansen barbieri and khan we did two of them we did um a track called Heaven Taste, which is a 20-minute instrumental, and the track Sweetheart Raw. And Sweetheart Raw came about in quite an interesting way because I'd written it as an acoustic song. Oh, it does, you, you wouldn't think that, hearing the final one. Not at all. So that actually started as one of my really straightforward acoustic singer-songwriter pieces. And I played it to Stephen. And then Stephen pretty much took it apart. And so what you had there was obviously a Mick Khan dominated verse and then a Stephen dominated coda. And what kind of remains from the original song is the song, but also the chorus. So, so the chorus is pretty much as it was brought in, but it's played on keyboard and the studio track. But I thought that was one of the best examples of pieces that we'd worked with on, uh, on Johnson Barry Khan. When we worked with him in the studio, it was fantastic, but live for me, it didn't work for either party. But it also, that song is another thread, which is the No Man obsession with coders, that for whatever reason, Stephen and I were always obsessed with how songs ended. Mm. And so a lot of No Man songs have ridiculously long coders. And this was one of those where it has this absolute chaos.
Another track that does that is Simple, where I think that's all, it's, it's one of the best no-man coders of all. And that happened because Simple started off as almost what it is, a simple pop song. But it was looking into the complications of how simple could be. And so you have this simple but quite open-hearted pop song. Then it becomes this quite demonic riff. And leading out of that, I think, is, is one of the most beautiful pieces of Robert Fripp's Frippatronics or soundscapes. And um, <clears throat> this happened in real time because what we'd written up to that point was the first two parts, two parts of the piece, sorry. And so you had the pop song that had suddenly dissolved into something that was very far from simple and very far from pretty. And Robert latched onto this and developed this extraordinarily complicated loop that was closer to modern classical music than anything. And so Simple is a song that I've always loved because I think it's, it manages to be quite direct and accessible, but it's also extremely complicated and quite avant-garde in its own way. You know, it, it starts in one place and it ends somewhere that you would not expect. And I think that that's a thread that's run through No Man its opposite is a track that I think I played on the last time I was on your show, which is True North. Yes. And True North is another 
three three part piece. But that perhaps begins in a bleak place, but ends in an almost joyous way. And so simple was was the beginning of this. And I'd say that Love You to Bits perhaps is one of its most logical successes. As I think I mentioned that originally Love You to Bits could have been part of the successor album for Flower Mouth. Mm. If you listen to, to, to Love You to Bits, what I like about it is that it begins as one thing. It then develops and develops and develops. And I think pretty quickly it's ending up in places that you really would not expect that although it has the core of quite a simple electro pop or disco piece it's actually compositionally one of the most complicated no man pieces and it's also one of the most eclectic pieces in terms of the influences that are in this you know whether it's the ambient or brass band or even the sort of jazz fusion elements I think it, it does things that you don't expect at the beginning. And Simple was one of those pieces that did that for me as well. You talked earlier about the use of samples and, and you've got a female sample there. On this, yeah, it's um, Lisa Gerrard from Dead Can Dance. And uh, Stephen and I were huge fans of Dead Can Dance. And um, it's from one of their albums. And they re- we played it to them and cleared the sample. And... What was really nice about it is that they seemed to really like the songs. So this was a case that they, um, because that's the only sample on the piece, Mm. that um, Lisa Gerard agreed for its use and wanted to be paid as a session singer because she thought it worked. So in that, we we just paid a basic session singer right and credited her on the album as a session singer because that's what she wanted. I could really love you 
we talked last time, even though you've got the spirit of prog in relation to kind of everything's on the table, actually, you draw from a much wider range of influences with tracks like Simple and uh, our final track, Killing to Survive. You bring in those. Anything you mentioned about Stephen being up for yeah. Absolutely, and I think you're right. I think, and it also ties in very much with "Love You So Bits." This prog, not prog. I think you know both of us are huge fans of, of especially the '60s underground and '70s classic prog bands. But one of the things that drew us to albums like "Close to the Edge" is that they're so audacious, they're so adventurous, and they're so eclectic. So if you're listening to "Close to the Edge," what makes it work for me is there's a brilliant pop song at the core of it. You know, John Anderson is a great 60s pop songwriter. So you've got beautiful pop melodies. You've even got hints of reggae in Close to the Edge. You've got mad jazz free-for-alls from Steve Howe. But you've also got country and Western influences. Um, Steve Howe was a huge country and Western fan, so you can hear in some of his pedal playing country. And there's a great deal of um, classical influence. You know, Sibelius was a huge influence on this. So what you've got is cutting edge rock combined with pop, classical, country, reggae. And in that sense, the spirit of prog, I think, has always been a part of what I do. You know, I'm not a great fan of every prog band and i'm certainly not a fan of complexity for complexity's sake it kind of leaves me cold but the the early bands in that genre were making it up as they went along you know bands like genesis king crimson yes gentle giant they didn't actually know what they were doing they were making up a genre and they were combining things so that element of prog rock has never gone away from Stephen and i you know it's arguable that love you to bits is both the most progressive thing we've ever done and yet the least prog thing we've ever done because there's not a single hint really of a prog influence in there but the way in which it was put together you know you think about it it's a 36 minute piece of music that is musically and lyrically related in 10 parts you can't get any more prog than that. <laughs> and yet, and yet, it probably hasn't got any specific prog elements. Um, so, yes, I think it kind of ties in with that. Killing to Survive was, was an interesting piece because that was, um, it sort of came together last year. But its origins are on a, on a demo cassette. We, we were going through our old demos to see if there was anything interesting that was worth pursuing for plenty. And we found this piece, and frankly, it was dreadful. So what we heard was me singing what is the melody of Killing to Survive and most of the lyrics, and Brian playing what could be an entirely different piece recorded in an entirely different country. <laughs> so it's, it's out of tune, it's out of sync, the verdict is a pretty much rotten one out of 10. But there's something in it where we're thinking, you know what? This could be really good. <laughs> and, and in fact, it was the piece that took the longest on Flowers at the Scene. So we discovered it and then we suddenly started working on it. And, and there were two tracks we discovered, actually. One of them was, it was a track called The Other Side. And The Other Side was, was, a, was a piece from 1986. And we knew exactly when this was written. And 
we were delighted because I'd always remembered it existed. And I always thought it was one of the best things I'd ever done. And we discovered it and discovered that it wasn't bad. And so within one day of rediscovering this 1986 piece that had been recorded on a school piano, we re-recorded it properly. I, I rewrote perhaps half of the lyrics, but within a day we'd done this and it's scheduled for what hopefully is going to be my next solo album. Um, but Killing to Survive, we just worked on and worked on. And what was nice about it is that when you overwork a piece, I would say 99 times out of 100, it's going to sound stale. It's going to sound overworked. It's going to sound as if there's no enthusiasm or spontaneity in it. And when we'd done this, initially we recorded it so that it actually sounded in tune and like it was actually a song that we'd co-written. So that was part one achieved. And then when we were getting extra bits from Colin Edwin and the drummer Tom Atherton, they were really hinting at things. And so as it went on, it developed its almost minimalist classical meets Ray Conniff singers coda. And then the verse was stripped down almost to the drums and the bass, because what they were doing was so beautifully intricate, yet very direct. And then the very last thing was it was almost committed as the track. And I thought, I can really hear Echoplex guitar on this. And so sent Brian to, to play the Echoplex guitar that I was not good enough to play. So, you know, it really came together in several stages and um and over a fair distance of time but i was I was quite pleased with um with it because it was it was one of the it was that one case in a hundred where at the end each change actually made it sound better and i kind of mention this because the person who mixed no man's love you to bits works with quite a few major bands and he was talking about one specific major band he works with and They've not released a studio album for about 12 years, but they're working every single day. And apparently they've got something like 10 alternative albums. They've got experimental albums, pure pop albums. They've got albums with different guest singers. And he said that they were working on a particular piece and they'd been working on it for 20 years. <laughs> and okay. he came in and he said, this is brilliant. And they've worked on it the next day. They'd taken out a, a few elements and added others until they absolutely destroyed it. So, you know, it's a case of this piece has been worked on and worked on and worked on over 20 years. And um, so, yeah, he felt that, um, you know, they weren't hearing it because he'd heard it like it was a new song to him originally. But they'd heard it just hearing all their mistakes, replace the mistakes. And he felt they'd ruined it and so this is the thing you know overworking can be a real curse mm. of material i think you know sometimes it's not and killing to survive hopefully wasn't it puts the uh, stone roses and stereo mc stories into perspective i think absolutely although interestingly enough the albums that, that didn't take that long in retrospect they only took, took a few years the last two talk talk albums i mean they were apparently painful you know because oh. they, they were wanting particular violin scrapes or particular yeah. piano detunes and um and what they demanded from musicians was was tortuous um or torturous but you know very odd um but strangely enough you're right when you listen to it now it only took them two years to create that torture 
<laughs> you know, love you to bits. 25 years of torture. It's <laughs> a lovely way to, to finish, Tim. We'll play uh, Killing to Survive from your last solo album from earlier this year, Flowers at the Scene. But um, really nice spread throughout the show. About in the mid- midway, we did play um, a montage of highlights from love you to bits so from what i've seen online um it's been really well received and people are really looking forward to its release in november yeah i mean thanks i mean i I think i think they are it it was a risk because it it is entirely different from anything we've released i think you know although it's got its roots in love loads and love cries and flower mouth overall it's nothing like anything we've done and it's also an incredible change in direction given what the no man albums of the last 20 years have, have sounded like and it's been really gratifying that most people yeah. have really adapted to the change and actually seem quite excited by it you know of course we've had quite a few people with disco sucks or you know this would be wonderful if steve was singing it or what have you you know we, we you know you always have this but uh, generally speaking, it's been really positive, and um, and that's good because you know it it actually felt very positive making the music. I mean, one of the interesting things is that I do really like Schoolyard Ghosts, but it was actually quite miserable to make. I mean, generally speaking, No Man's Sessions have been you know reasonably good fun, but Schoolyard Ghosts was actually quite miserable for various reasons. Um, or albums were produced in times of sadness. So Together with Stranger actually wasn't a miserable album to make, but I think both Stephen and I were going through quite a lot in terms of sort of relationship collapses and family illnesses and the mood surrounding it was not positive, although the actual recording of it was fairly positive. But the thing about Love You To Bits was there was a real energy. Once we'd got our teeth into it, it felt great. And, and so it's really nice that the positivity that went into it is being reflected in some of the responses to it. Mm. Any further plans for you or or working with Stephen or many of the other artists that we've covered today? Well, the only thing I'm working on at the moment is um, I spent most this year really working on Love You To Bits and and I'd deliberately not written anything really because I've got one album that's that's in the can. It's an album I did with Peter Chilvers and we finished it in 2017 and Peter Hamill mixed it. And because he's been busy working with Brian Eno and I've had um, flowers at the scene and now no man, we've just not had time to dedicate to release it or promote it or perform gigs for it. So we've got um, the Albert Peter Childers that, that, that was finished in 2017. And that's, that's odd for me because actually it's an older album than flowers at the scene and love you to bits, <laughs> but will be released afterwards. Um, but I deliberately didn't write. And then I was on holiday in August because I just wanted to see what would happen when I wrote spontaneously, you know, other than rewriting and adding to Love You To Bits, which, which had a real focus, no new songs. And so I didn't write from, say, October 2018 to August 2019. And suddenly something happened. I was on holiday. All I had was my computer studio. I wrote something. And Luckily, I think when you've been away from something for a while, something fresh happened. So what happened was definitely not Flowers at the Scene 2.0, definitely not Love You to Bits 2.0. And um, it was slower and sadder, but it also had a very particular electronic soundscape 
as well as a, a vibraphone scope. Don't get, don't know why, but vibraphone suddenly. And um, I played it to Brian, who really liked it. And within about six weeks, I'd written and co-written with Brian about six pieces. And so basically, I've got just over half of what I hope is going to be the follow-up solo album to Flowers at the Scene. And what's interesting is that they've all got quite a similar soundscape. And lyrically, because I hadn't really written anything fresh since Flowers at the Scene, it was interesting to see what was coming out. And it was quite odd for me to find out that there was a very strong, almost kind of global, political, religious thread running through all of the songs. And it really wasn't what I was expecting to write. And so I'm quite confident that however it's received, it is going to be once more a step into the unknown. And that's great. But, you know, whether that step into the unknown is is going to be appreciated, I don't know. Because, you know, again, it, it really isn't prog. In fact, in this case, it really isn't rock music in any way either. But, you know, you do what you have to do, what you need to do at various points. And then this is what came out naturally. So, yeah, it, it was really nice that after an absence of 10 months of not writing anything new you know other than rewriting that six completely fresh pieces emerged and and they weren't what i was expecting that's great tim thank you so much it's been such a pleasure to connect with you again and um, play another selection of, of tracks from your career and get a taste of the uh, new no man album yeah thank you yeah hopefully it's good <laughs> so hopefully, it'll be as, hopefully it'll be as good as the the first epic that we did so thanks a lot take care Fantastic. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Stay strong As you stumble Through the browns and greys Back on your own You've got to find a way To get through these days Of signal jokes and laughter tracks To get through these nights Of loneliness and desperate acts to find a way 
for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's been almost 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the home page thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.